Hello, welcome back to the Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery podcast. I'm Ellen and Cisco. I'm Cecilia Kikena. And I'm M. Tom Bash. We're research fellows at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and along with Stay Current, we're sharing knowledge to improve child health around the globe. And here we're starting a somewhat new series. We've been doing the podcast highlighting Journal of Pediatric Surgery articles, and now we're going to start highlighting some of their case reports. So they have a separate journal, the JPS case reports. Um, we're going to bring you some of the highlights every once in a while throughout the year. So our first selection of case reports to review that were interesting is from the first quarter of 2023 between January and March. And Dr. Pablo Laje, who's the editor-in-chief of JPS Case Reports, helped us choose these articles. Hi, everyone. I am Pablo Laje. I'm one of the attending pediatric surgeons at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm the uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pediatric Surgery Case Reports. The articles are listed and linked in the description below. Follow along and read with us. So we have three case reports. One is about intestinal lengthening in an infant with short gut syndrome and a novel technique. Then we'll have a case series about synthetic patch infections after CDH repair. And then finally, we'll talk about a novel approach to a traumatic tracheoesophageal fistula in an infant. Our first case report of the day. Intestinal lengthening via mechanical enterogenesis in an infant with short gut syndrome. We talk with the senior author, Dr. James Dunn from Stanford University. Hi, I'm James Dunn. I'm the chief of pediatric surgery at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. So the patient was a male infant born at 28 weeks due to maternal HALP syndrome. He was admitted to the NICU for management of conditions related to his prematurity. He was advanced to gold tube feeds via NG on day 5 after resolution of meconium disease. Then he developed abdominal distension on day 25, which progressed to the modeling and worsening distension on day 27. We usually start with uh, non-operative management, monitoring serial x-rays to look for signs of perforation. And then, of course, we use uh, clinical criteria to see if they're clinically deteriorating. And in this case, there was a perforation noted, so he was taken to the operating room. They found small bowel ischemia and a large walled-off perforation, 40 centimeters from the ligament of trites. They resected 18 centimeters of gangrenous bowel, and created a proximal jejunostomy and distal mucous fistula. How did he follow? Two days later, they returned to the OR due to rising lactate, worsening duskiness of the mucous fistula, an ultrasound demonstrating diminished perfusion of the distal small bowel. So this time, they had to resect additional non-viable small bowel, including the mucous fistula, and 45 centimeters of necrotic distal ileum. After this surgery, the total length of the remaining small bowel was estimated as 23 centimeters of proximal jejunum and 4 centimeters of defunctionalized terminal ileum. After surgery, he recovered pretty well from the neck and he was able to get some partial feeding. has a pretty high ostomy output, as one may expect uh, from having a proximal jejunostomy. He was maintained on parental nutrition but they decided to initiate ileal lengthening via mechanical enterogenesis using a novel catheter-based method due to high likelihood of the indefinite parental nutrition dependence. And here's how they do it. Dr. Dan explains their technique. And the idea came to me that we can potentially make the little piece of ileum that's left over longer by putting in a tube, a fully catheter in this case, and then you can blow up the balloon inside the 
lumen of the intestine. That way the pressure is more evenly distributed. So what we ended up doing was to pull on this tube for about 20 days. And then we did it every other day by increasing the distance a little bit. So we ended up adding a centimeter of ileum. This technique will have some limitations. Mainly, you can only stretch the bowel to the length of the abdominal cavity. However, the good point of this technique was that the ileal stump was too short for any of the other techniques that are available, like self-expanding springs and any other thing that you can think of was not applicable for this because the ileum was super short. That was Dr. Pablo Lahe. He helped us to choose this case reports to highlight in this episode. It's so amazing that they were able to lengthen the terminal ileum. Another finding that is perhaps even more exciting is an increase in intestinal absorption of feeds proximally as they were lengthening the ileum. During the pulling period, in addition to gaining length, and for reasons may or may not be related to this stimulation, we notice a drop in the ostomy output. It's almost as though there is some hormonal signal that's sent to the rest of the body that allowed the absorption to increase. We talk about this with the intestinal rehab podcast too. Like when some part of the intestine is being stimulated, it can create some hormones and secrete different proteins that can help other parts of the gut also enhance their action. So I think that this proves that very well. Right. They got one centimeter length, but they may have proven that by stretching somehow stimulates absorption globally. That's fascinating, actually. That was Dr. Todd Ponsky. Okay, so now we have synthetic patch infection after congenital diaphragmatic hernia repair, a case series. This is from the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And we talked to Dr. Dustin Flannery, and he is the senior author. Hi, my name is Dustin Flannery. I am a neonatologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. So this is a case series. We have 10 patients. All of the patients had a CDH that was repaired at birth, and all of them needed synthetic patch. They normally use Goratex, but the interesting thing is that these patients at different times after the surgery came to the hospital presenting respiratory syndromes. Some of them became ill a month after the surgery. Some of them became ill 20 years after the surgery. And so interestingly, the, the median time for presentation of suspected or confirmed patch infection was almost a year after repair. So it was not immediately after surgery or even in the first couple of weeks, although there was a widespread. And most of the presenting symptoms included pretty nonspecific signs and symptoms like respiratory distress, fever, and some of the cases presented with signs of a flank abscess. They first of all make a chest x-ray and some of them require ultrasonography or a CT where you can find some pus accumulation or liquid accumulation around the patch. And some of them even have like air bubbles. They sort of establish criteria for suspected infection and definitive infections. And that was Dr. Pablo Laje, the editor that helped us choose these articles. So for, for suspected infection, they said, well, you know, the patient must have some type of symptoms, either respiratory symptoms or symptoms of a systemic infection, and some 
form of imaging suspicion. And that can be something as easy as gas around the patch or fluid around the patch or other things that could be more more subtle. And of course, the confirmation comes with a positive culture of a liquid or even the patch. Given the organisms that we found, the uh, infection epidemiology profile and the susceptibility patterns, it definitely should cover some of the most common organisms, specifically E. coli, as well as bowel flora. Because so we recommended um, a regimen like cefepime and metronidazole or piperacillin tazobactam as empiric treatment. And again, that was Dr. Dustin Plenary. Patients got really, really sick. Two patients died and the rest of them fortunately, are doing well right now. But it is a thing to be aware. Some of them happen after 20 years of the surgery. And so we have to be really alert when these things happen. You know, I, I thought it was a very well done study. Highlight of it was just to make everybody aware that these infections can happen long term. And let's hear what Todd had to say. It's surprising to me, especially one that got it so many years later. I would love to see a national or multi-institutional results to see if this is institution-specific or if this is happening to all high-volume centers. I would love to know the rate of infection in an endoscopic repair versus open, but I'm very curious for this to be followed up with a multi-center study. I do think that kind of the most important thing here is that no matter kind of how far out a patient is from their CDH patch repair, if they have, you know, certain findings, signs, or symptoms, then don't discount the possibility of a patch infection just because they're, you know, 20 years out or whatever, 10 years out from their repair. So the last case report we have is a radical approach to traumatic tracheoesophageal fistula, use of a biliary stent for esophageal repair in an infant. And this case report comes from Wake Forest. So the infant in this case report was a nine-month-old who initially presented with fussiness and cough to an urgent care facility, was prescribed an antibiotic, but then presented to the local emergency department five days later with fever, worsening cough difficulty breathing, a chest x-ray was obtained at that time and they found that he had a, a button battery in his esophagus. And so he was taken urgently for removal of the battery via endoscopy. And he was found to have a large tracheoesophageal fistula. This was a, a small patient, just a nine-month-old kid who had a, a two-centimeter long fistula between the trachea and the esophagus, which, which is really huge. And again, that was Dr. Pablo Lajet. They placed a fully covered, self-expanding biliary metal stent, 80 millimeters by 10 millimeters, into the esophagus. And the reason for that is that it was, you know, normal esophageal stents are, are made for adults and too big for this infant. And so the biliary stent was a good size that could fit in the infant esophagus. From time to time, they would just replace the stent and that provided air, airway isolation so that the patient would, would be ventilated appropriately without soiling the lungs like all, all day long and just provided enough time for, for the esophagus and the trachea to, to heal. And they basically secured the stent in place by putting a suture through the end of it and then bringing it out of the patient's 
nose and taping it to their cheek. Yeah, so these stents tend to migrate. You know, if you don't anchor them, they tend to go usually distal, but they can go upwards as well. And, and that, that can be a problem. And overall, the intervention was successful. After 32 days in the hospital, he was discharged with jejunostomy feedings. And at post-op day 48, he again underwent reassessment and stent replacement. And the stent was ultimately removed on post-op day 135. So it was a long course for the child and the patient, but overall the dent placement was successful in helping to heal the tracheoesophageal fistula. I really like this because when you have a bottom battery injury, the problem is that you have this huge hole between the trachea and the esophagus and you need some way to cover it. But if you go there to do a surgery, you will destroy everything because the bottom battery just make your tissue awfully friable and imagine five days of that so you are in the worst period of friable tissue there and so they created this thing with the biliary stand that it's super innovative and i think it was super ingenious and i i really think they did the right thing here and here's what todd had to say but I, I love this application and good for them on doing this. And it sounds like it was a success. So this is a great case report. And this has to be a case report because you're not going to have that many. So uh, this is an example where case reports are very valuable to hear about because you need to know about it, even though it's only one case. Awesome. Three interesting case reports we heard about a novel technique for intestinal lengthening in the infant with short gut syndrome. We look forward to hearing more in that research. Then we heard about some synthetic patch infections in patients who underwent CDH repair with a synthetic patch and how infection should be on the differential uh, for patients presenting with signs of infection any time after their patch repair. And finally, we heard about a novel technique for conservative management of a traumatic tracheoesophageal fistula in an infant who swallowed a disc battery and had a delayed recognition of the issue. If you liked this episode, don't forget to follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel, listen to previous episodes of this podcast or other podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from. And don't forget to download the Staker and app on App Store or Play Store. Thanks for listening as always. Until next time, I'm Ellen and Cisco. I'm Cecilia Hikena. And I'm M. Tom Bash. We're research fellows at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and along with Stay Current, we're sharing knowledge to improve child health around the globe. <laughs>